0: Hello and welcome to the Woodard Report Podcast, where we empower business advisors to transform businesses. This podcast is your source for information and news you need for your accounting, bookkeeping, or tax practice. And it is proudly sponsored by Expensify, the expense management app that does it all for every business. We are also proudly sponsored by File, easy expense management via text messaging. For more information about both Expensify and File, please visit woodard.com slash podcast. And now your hosts, Joe Woodard and Heather Satterly. Well, Heather, we're back again talking about things that help accountants with various things. And that makes it sound very generic, but it's actually always super exciting. It's great to have you here, Heather.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Excited to be here with you, Joe.
0: Yep. Yep. And I know that you've got something that is on the top of your mind today, and that is process improvement strategies. Yes. Because we all have process. The only question is, how do we manage process? So um, I'm going to turn you loose, let you go, and I'm interested to see what you have to say. And then I'll have some comments, I'm sure.
1: So what's really interesting about what I'm going to be talking about is I'm actually going to be talking about what is the process For process improvement. So I'm going to tell you what it is, and then I'm going to tell you how do you get there and how do you keep really uh, instill a culture within your organization of continuous process improvement? Because I think that's really what we have to do as accounting professionals is always be striving to do better, always be striving to increase our efficiency, and always be striving to know what new technology, new tools, and new methods are out there that can help us with, uh, you know, to stay ahead of the curve and increase our competitive, you know, how competitive we are in the market. So let's start with what is process optimization is what I'm gonna call it. So process optimization is really, is the the process of taking a look at what you're doing now and how you're doing it and then looking for opportunities to improve that. So we this should be something that I firmly believe has to be ingrained in the DNA of every single accounting firm because let's face it everything that we do in our practice is based on process. We're following IRS process when we're filing a tax return or going through the process of defending one of our client's tax returns when we go under audit. All of that is process. When we're creating financial statements, when we're going through month and review, we are a process dependent profession. So it's really important that we're constantly thinking about how we can do better. So the first thing that you have to do in order to, uh, to think about optimizing your processes within your firm is you need to understand where the pitfalls are. So the things that you need to be looking for uh, as far as inefficient processes is look at what's going on in your firm and look for places where bottlenecks exist. So things that are happening, that are slowing down the delivery of your services to your clients or are, are creating a possibly negative client experience that are really hindering that, excellent uh, you know, client experience within your firm. You also want to be focusing on where do you have redundancies? Where are you putting the same information in more than one place? And where are you having to duplicate efforts in order to get a single outcome? That's where we want to be focusing as well. And then poor performance. Where are you not hitting the mark? And I know that's really, really hard. And what I find especially and I don't I, I don't even say especially in smaller firms. Um, you know, my firm was a pretty small firm, so that's kind of where I focus. But having worked in large firms for a big chunk of my career, this happens across the board, is where you know, the poor performance. Sometimes we tend to, you know, do this and put your hands over your eyes and your ears and say, but I'm really good at this. And I think that one of the hardest things that you can do as a practitioner and as a team is to take those blinders off, open your ears open your mind and really confront the fact that you could have poor performance within your firm and then tackle how are you going to improve that. Um, So just focusing on the things you do great Doesn't make up for the things that you may not do so well. So focusing on that, um, you really do need to take a look at it. And there's a couple of ways that you can go once you identify that. And we've talked about that in other podcasts, um, Joe, about defining what our superpower is and really focusing on what it is that we're going to be doing in our practice and what we're not going to be doing. So I feel like looking at your process is a perfect time to shake out your VMP, your vision, mission, and purpose, and make sure that the things that you're doing within your firm are still aligning with why you're in business and why, you know, what is the change that you want to make and the, you know, the exceptional service you want to deliver to your clients. Okay. The other thing that, uh, that we need to be looking at in our processes is, is do we have inadequate insight into pieces of information that our our clients will benefit from and that make us a better partner and advisor to our clients. Okay, so what are the processes? Are they giving us the details and the information that we need to make a difference? And then the other thing we wanna be looking at is, are we taking advantage of opportunities for systems integration? So are we doing things in different applications that we may not need to actually be doing? can we make that data talk to each other? Can we make our systems, you know, come into a nice sync and eliminate some of the busy work that we or our team are doing? And then we also want to increase the transparency and the interdepartmental cohesiveness. And so looking at our processes is a great time for us to look at how are we communicating as an organization and how are we communicating with, uh, with our clients and, Are we providing the level of transparency and that cohesiveness that we are are looking to to have within our company? So the first thing that we need to do is to get to know our processes. And as Joe, as you always say, and, and a lot of people always say, we have to start with the end in mind. What is it that we're looking to solve for and why are we actually performing that process? So one of the things that that I found in um, early on in my career was that as accounting professionals, we tend to slip back into that's the way we've always done it, right? Because we're reliant on, uh, you know, on tax laws and you know, uh, gap and the other kind of rules and regulations that that constrain us when we are doing things in processes within our firm, sometimes we forget that that may not be the only way to do it and may not be the best way to do it. So we want to make sure that at the end of the day when we're looking at our process that we're, we're, we're really understanding what it is that we're trying to solve for rather than just getting dependent on the motions of going through it, doing the busy work as it were, right? We also want to identify pain points and preferences. So uh, where is that process difficult for people that are involved in it. So it could be members of your team that are struggling to uh you know to complete tasks within a process. It could be clients are struggling to complete tasks within the pro- uh, process. And the thing that that always comes to top of my mind and I know it does to every single person that's listening to this podcast is getting information from our clients. Right? We keep reinventing ways that we can make it easier for our clients to get us information. And so that's one place where when we're looking at processes. We need to really drill down to that client experience and focus on that. And, you know, Joe and I, you and I did a whole podcast on client experience and what that looks like. So definitely go and and listen to that, to that episode. Uh, and then preferences are really important as well is... You know, Joe, you and I at Woodard, we were just talking about preferences and in task management among our team. People's brains think differently, and it's important to check in with your team to make sure that the technology and the structure of how you're structuring your work and your processes works for the team and is in line with how your team, the team synergy, as it were, how they actually approach their day-to-day work. And then finally, you need to document your processes. And this is one that is super time consuming. And we also have a podcast episode where we really dig into the documenting our processes. So go listen to that because there's some great tips there as well. Um, but documenting the process so you know everything that's going into it is key to being able to optimize it. Because you may think that you know everything that's happening within a process, but unless you're the person that's doing all the things there may be pieces that you don't fully understand and until you look at it across your entire organization you're not going to be able to really understand how to optimize that process and make it something that uh, is efficient and super effective. Um, So one of the best ways that I do that when I am looking at the uh, you know documenting the processes is I use technology as much as possible. So you know, in the old days when all of us were on the ground in a, in a physical brick and mortar location, the way that we documented processes, if it wasn't something that we were doing ourselves was we'd sit at a desk with someone and we would look over their shoulder and we would write down the things that they're doing and we would make notes. Well, the cool thing is, is that we now have technology that can do this for us. So because most of us are remote, most people uh, have zoom or some other video application teams Loom, they have some way to capture screen share, the things that they're doing on the computer, their voice, and then how they're interacting with data. And so we can use these tools to help us capture the processes that we're doing. And the benefit of that is actually twofold. One is we don't have to have a person actually sitting there writing things down. The technology is actually doing it for us. And these technologies, I would say almost all of them now have a transcription feature, which will actually take what you say and turn it into text that then can be used uh, in SOPs or standard operating processes and things um, that you can then look at and evaluate. Um, So turning on your camera, just starting Zoom, clicking record, and sharing your screen and talking your way through a process is a great way to capture what you're doing and why you're do- why you are doing it. So really, you know, drilling in on uh, giving yourself or giving Zoom or your whole company in this case the narrative of why you're doing what you're doing can help others to understand the the logic behind each step or task within a process. And I think that's really important because I remember early in my career, uh, training somebody at a client that I was working on and I was training them through the steps of the process. And the person stopped and asked me why I was doing something. I think I was doing accounts payable and I don't even remember what it was that was part of that process. But she, I remember her looking at me going, why, why do you do that? And I remember stopping and I started to open my mouth to explain why I was doing it. And I didn't have an answer, Joe. I didn't have an answer. It was the way we had always done it, which is the kiss of death when you're talking about optimizing process, right? So that was a huge learning moment for me in my career was that, that you constantly have to be asking, why? Is this still relevant? Uh, the next thing, the other uh, technology that I use is a tool like ScribeHow which is a tool that captures screenshots of what you're doing when you're working in applications. It works in the cloud, it works uh, on your desktop applications with the paid version, but what it does is it captures that and it allows you to edit steps and create a step-by-step visual uh, you know, SOP for what it is that you're actually accomplishing. And what's great about that is that You now can actually see how somebody, the clicks and the different things that they were doing to see how they were completing a task. And you're able to look for where they may have done something inefficiently, and you can look for a better way to do it. So those are two great uh, technologies that that I recommend. Okay, so talking about those details, when you're getting started to optimize across your your company uh, processes, the first thing that you need to do is take an inventory of them. So take an inventory of what are the processes that you're doing within your firm. And what I always start with is I create a spreadsheet, super easy, spreadsheet of all the clients that you're working on, right? And if you're a big firm, then you could do this for your tax clients, for your uh, cash clients, for audit clients, but you know, kind of group them together and then put across in the columns, What are the different processes that you're completing for these particular clients? And then go through and put an X, you know, at the intersection for each client, each each, for each client, you're going to put in an X for the process that you're using for them. Now, the reason that I suggest that you do this is that, first of all, you're documenting all of the processes that are happening within your firm, but then you're also creating a way to gauge what are the most important processes to focus on first, because you need to have a starting point within your firm. You can't tackle everything at once and you want to get the most bang for your buck. So if you're going through and looking at all the processes in your firm across your entire client base, now you can look at the columns that have the most X's in them and know which ones to focus on first. So taking that process inventory is super important. The other thing that you're going to want to do is once you identify which processes to focus on, then what you're going to focus on is what are the steps in those process? So you're gonna to start to break down each process and look at what are the different steps in it? What are the applications that you're using? Who are the people that are involved with the process? And what are the different touch points? And by touch points, what I'm talking about here is changes in an application, for example, QuickBooks or Expensify, right? Uh, and people, so uh, an accounting manager, a staff accountant, a client, Right. Or we're talking about a quality control measure where in that process you need a set of eyes to validate data or to make sure that you are staying compliant with a particular uh, particular rule. So checking the box. So it could be for accounts payable. A great example is do you have a W-9? Right. That's a step in the process where you want somebody to check the box, and say, yep, I got a W9 before I move on to the next step. So those are the things that you're going to want to focus on. So, again, you can do this in an Excel spreadsheet. Just think about it. You know, here's the process. Put in all the tasks, put the order of the tasks, put the name of the person doing them, the application being used um, and any details that you may have. And that's a way that you can start to document what your process looked like. OK. And so uh, I called this my process inventory worksheet. Um, Some other things that you may want to be looking at is process inputs, what data is coming in in the process, what data is needed, and what are the process outputs. So accounts payable, process input could be i got to enter a bill. Process output, i got to pay the bill, right? There's going to be some kind of payment. Uh, And then you're going to have all of this documented, and then at that point you're ready to start mapping the process. And I recommend using something like Visio, Miro board or Lucidchart to start creating flowcharts of these processes, so you can start to identify places where there's duplication of effort. You're putting the data into different area, you know, into more than one area, and places where you can actually start to automate. So, for example, if I'm talking about accounts payable process, it's the easiest one to talk to. If I'm doing it all manually, then we know that I'm getting a bill in the mail, right? I'm entering into QuickBooks. I'm sending it to somebody to get approved, and then I'm, you know, once it's approved, then I have to go and schedule the the the, the check. I got to print the check and then give it to somebody to sign, and then I got to mail it. So I've got all these manual tasks. Well, if I map that out and I start looking at it, I can start thinking about ways that I can eliminate some of these steps or make them easier, and I can start looking for technology that can handle it. So technology like Bill. Or Corpay One, right, that actually allow me to go in and get those approvals with the click of a button that could actually use OCR technology so that I don't have to manually enter anything into my accounting software or into the AP software. But I can't start doing that until I understand what the actual process is. So just to recap, step one, inventory of your process. Step two, is mapping that process. What are the steps? Who are the people involved? What is the technology involved? And then step three is start looking at where can you improve? Where do you have duplication of effort? Where do you have inconsistency? Uh, And that's going to set you up for optimizing those processes. And you're going to see that just tackling the first one, you're going to see a huge ROI. Plus, I'm biased, but I think it's a super fun thing to do.
0: Yeah. For some people, it is super fun if you're processor-driven. you know, and as I'm listening to what you're saying here, I, I'm glad you kind of ended with ROI because I was thinking, you know, everybody talks about how expensive Bill is, for example, but in how expensive workflow solutions like Mango are. I mean, they, they love to talk about this stuff, but they never think about the alternative cost of what you're paying in salaries and not just salaries, but the overall burden of a team member when it comes down to an element of ratio a ratio of effort, where are we spending money more? And uh, and then there's also the issue of scale within your practice. So even if you were to argue, well, at the rate I'm paying my bookkeeping producers, for them to do this 15-minute process for this client three times a month is not as expensive as spinning up bill for this client for just three vendors. Even if you were to make that argument, and it was just a dollar-to-dollar dollar argument, Don't forget that there is a scale issue um, and a transferability of responsibility issue. Plus, if I'm handling paper uh, checks, there's an internal control issue. And all of these factor into ROI, not just the hard dollar piece. So, uh, And I don't want to go too much onto this because it gets into a sort of a pricing and costing modeling thing. but. The reason we under-deploy process at the client level are we pick and choose who we do it for and underdeploy the streamlining of process and who we do it for, and we tend to focus on the complex ones and we are more manual with the others. The reason we do that is because we have the wrong profitability framework. We're measuring profit and loss by client instead of measuring profit and loss by portfolio, and we're not making considerations for client experience, internal controls, and scalability. So I know I kind of broadened a little bit, but I wanted to kind of go broad to go back narrow on your topic because as people are listening to you talk, Heather, they might be thinking, this sounds like I need to write War and Peace. I don't have time to even read War and Peace. Nonetheless, write War and Peace. So great information, but I'll never get around to it. I'll get around to it the Friday after, never. So I really like what you're saying about just start with the inventory. A lot of times just starting a process is going to be the best way to overcome the FUD, and and I agree. The inventory process is it, it's it's fun in the if you're a processor, but it, for everyone, it's it brings mental clarity because you're you're you are trying to store all this stuff in your brain and juggle it in in, in your brain. Getting out of the paper liberates you, but. You I, know- I, I Go ahead. ahead. I was
1: just going to say, too, that, you know, you've got to go through this. You've got to go through the process of documenting your process or you're never going to scale. And not only that, you're not going to be able to find anyone to help you to overcome inefficient processes until you actually take that step.
0: That's correct. And you may get you may find that the return on investment that you project is so significant, you can actually bring in somebody whose role it is just to curate these in your business uh, in your in your practice. And then the last thing I'm going to say here, because I know we're over on this topic, but it's such an important topic. If you're feeling a little daunted, Heather is not purporting that you have fully democratized, fully standardized processes all the way down to the video level for 100% of your clients all at one time, because that's back to writing War and Peace. Now, what I found, Heather, um, is the, the strategy works similarly to the way we used to build essays in high school and college. You know, we would have a level one outline and then once we got our A, B, C, we would start doing the sub out- components, what defends A, B, C. And then we had a third level of outline, what defends the thing that defends the... You know. So once we get these three levels of outline done, we can write the essay. But I, the barrier to writing the essay is if you're just staring at a blinking cursor thinking you're going to prolifically create profundity it's never going to exist unless you happen to be a prolific author uh, or prolific thinker. It, it the outline comes before the writing. So the way that translates into process uh, and this will make it so easy for you guys to embrace the fun Heather's talking about, all you have to do in the way I prescribe it for your clients, client by client is determine what you're doing at what frequencies? And I mean, we're talking really high level. Client exactly. A, we are doing a payable cycle every other week. We are doing a bank rec once a month. There's no, nothing below that at all. And you don't need to have anything below that at all. And when you introduce it just at this broad chunk level, you're still reducing errors and omissions. because, And you're creating productivity because somebody's going to reach out about that check run every other week even if they couldn't possibly do it without other systems informing them or the knowledge in the brain informing them, the next level is to unpack at a checklist level, not at an outcome level, but a checklist level, what are the checklist items I do on an accounts payable run? This is still not transferable knowledge. You can't just plop somebody in and expect them to run the checklist. There's not enough context, but that's okay. You're still reducing errors and omissions and you're making progress. Right. Um, and like you said, Heather, identifying uh, redundancies and, and places you can streamline. Then the third level is what you were talking about with Loom and Scribe and you know, where it's transferable knowledge. Right. Uh, and that means you've got to have how to's screenshots so that somebody else could take over that role with minimal trading, follow the guides below the checklist, which sits below the outcomes But even if it took you years to get to level three, the question is, how long would it take for you just to put in the cyclical outcomes of each client cycle for tax and accounting? Not that long.
1: No, I love that because that's exactly where we start with that process inventory, right? right and 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 then they can see where to focus and i was actually just sharing on a webinar that the technology today with chat gpt you throw that zoom on you talk your way through it you take the transcription you throw it in chat gpt you say summarize the process that i just completed
0: and it will give you all it the way down into the steps one,
1: and now you've got a starting point you're going to have to tweak it but it's going to do that heavy lifting and what you were talking about to me i you know the essay the writer's block yeah, we've now just overcome the writer's block. So we've overcome the writer's block through through, a, through
0: a, a process, a process exactly. to define your process. And there's a the book ends, where you start, where we end. All right. That <laughs> exactly. was fantastic, Heather. That, that was great. OK, so let's move into the next uh, the next topic here. And it's it's one of my my super favorites because you and I are both TV and movie junkies. And people always ask, where on earth, Joe, do you find the time to watch so much TV and so many movies? I'm sure you get asked too, Heather. But, you know, I find that like if I'm watching a movie, I might it might take me six or seven instances to get (laughs) to get through the movie and even an episode, a single episode of a television show, because I tend to uh, watch them whenever I'm taking off and landing or uh, or the otherwise I can't function on the plane. And, uh, And I might have 15 minutes, but it's like reading a book. You don't read a book all at one time. I don't even watch one episode of a show all at one time. But one of the ones that I rewatched recently, um, it was kind of in the background to create some energy while I did other things, was Avengers Civil War. And uh, if you don't know your Avengers, I'm not going to break it all down. But They're basically a band of superheroes. And one of the superheroes, they're trying, they're going through this big debate on are the Avengers uh, going to be managed by the United Nations or are we going to stay independent and autonomous? And they were camps of these things. Mm-hmm. And that obviously the easiest path was just to say yes to the UN resolution, not fight the United Nations and all the companies they represent. Um, and one of the characters, Scarlet Widow, she said, just because it's the path of least resistance doesn't mean it's the wrong path. Yeah, she's saying that to Captain America. Just because it's the path of least resistance doesn't mean it's the wrong path. Um And it it wasn't that she was even convinced that they should take the path of police resistance. She actually ended up siding with Captain America, spoiler alert. But the point is, that's a good truth. And I think people who are driven and people who are entrepreneurial and people are used to building their kingdoms in the business world presume that it's always going to be a headwind. And... If it's not, you can actually get into this negative validation of going, well, I'm not having to work hard enough at this. I must not be doing it to the greatest degree of excellence, or I would have to be going at it harder. What am I missing, right? Now, I want to contrast that, because while what Scarlet Widow said is true, what John Maxwell said is also true. And both things can be true at the same time. John Maxwell not from a movie, but from a great conference I attended, he pointed, you can't see my camera on this podcast, but he pointed up and to the left with his hand, up and to the left, pointing with his finger. So you can kind of get the vision of it. And he said, everything good in life is up there, uphill, right? Now he's right. So how can both things be true at the same time? Because, truth is circumstantial, It while, he, while what he's saying is generally true of overall objectives and major accomplishments in life, at any given moment, it could be an easier part of your climb. Think about when we're climbing any mountain, there are level spots. While you're going up the mountain, there are even sometimes downhill spots. But the net increase is what John Maxwell was talking about. So it's okay not to have to strive all the time.
1: Thank goodness. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness.
1: Yeah, no, I think that way. So mine is actually very similar. My story is very, mm. right, it's, it's a completely different story, but the same kind of point is the greatest showman, which is actually one of my favorite movies. Um, and so the, the, the the scene that i was thinking about was when um you know pt barnum is trying to get funding for his his show and he's reached out to uh Philip carlisle right to get him to come on board and you know carlisle is saying well this isn't this isn't going to give the roi i don't see the the benefit of this and P.T. Barnum says, you know, this isn't supposed to be comfortable. What my vision is, is to change, right? So he wanted to bring the uniqueness of people and diversity into the forefront to celebrate them. And that's hard, right? And so what his quote was, is comfort is the enemy of progress.
0: hmm. And And so so the
1: takeaway, the business takeaway of that, which is, is very in line with what you were, you know, early with John, uh, with John Maxwell had said was the complacency can kill our competitive edge, right? When we Mm -hmm. stop striving, you know, to, when we get too comfortable, we stop questioning things. And that's where we start to slip, slip into, you know, the Sally mindset that I call it. You know where we stop thinking about how things can be better, and we just get comfortable with the tasks and going through the motions. And so we need to, and and, and you know, there, the the greatest showman's a lot bigger. Like we're talking, you know, of, you know, changing the world. But I think with us, we are in a we are being challenged right now as an industry with defining the next. And so we have got to step out of our comfort zone, open our eyes and look at what's coming at us, which is a, uh, artificial intelligence, outsourcing, the global economy. You know, we've got to be looking at this and we need to be looking at it and getting uncomfortable and asking those uncomfortable questions. Because if we don't, then we're going to lose our voice in how our how our industry is going to look in the future. So um, there's my, I'm going to get off my soapbox now, but that was... Uh, <laughs> My movie, The Greatest Showman. If you haven't seen it, it's amazing.
0: So good. So let's move into the book segment. Uh, I'm going to take that this time, and I'm 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 almost done with Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. So, um, and you know, I've, a lot of people are, would just assume I've already read everything Malcolm Gladwell's ever written, but I'm actually on a backlog of Malcolm Gladwell. I he was one of the folks that I didn't lean into uh, over the over the last decade or so. So I'm catching up. Uh, David and Goliath is going to be my next one because sometimes I do feel like I'm David playing with Goliaths of Intuit and Zero and all these other people that we do business with. So, but, but more on that in a minute, maybe I'll do that next episode. The, uh, the book I'm reading right now is Outliers. What I'm finding fascinating, um, in the book, because he's not talking about how to become one, he's dissecting why people became them. And that, that was, that, that's a huge takeaway. Um, and in that, maybe you can somehow reverse engineer becoming an outlier. But a lot of these factors have absolutely nothing to do with the person who is the outlier, uh, the, the person who is phenomenally successful beyond the statistical norm. So the example he gave was hockey players out of Canada. And what he determined is, in the most premier league of hockey in Canada, uh, a, a disproportionately higher number of players, over 70% of them, had birthdays in January and February. So he began to unpack that a little bit because that can't just be a coincidence. There has to be a connection between these outliers and their birthdays over which they had no control whatsoever. And he found the connection was the, the, the when they qualified to play at a certain grade level. And it didn't go based off of school year. It went based off of birth date. So anybody that was playing as a child in hockey leagues, and and hockey is like football here in the United States. You know, all the boys play it, or the majority of the boys play it, maybe even disproportionately greater in Canada. So, So the idea is whenever they started, they were always the oldest and they were always the biggest on their team. So as a result of them being the oldest and the biggest on their team, the coaches played them more because that's how the coaches won games. Then everybody celebrated them more because they played more and because their their play resulted in winning games. They were developed more by the coaches. They had more field time, so they developed faster. And then repeat the cycle again through those childhood years, year over year, and they developed into better players than those that had birthdays in September, October, November, and December. And they went to the pros when other people did not. Now, if you start to peel back not just that one example with Canadian hockey, because he's this is not a book on Canadian hockey. This is a book on dissecting what creates outliers. There are implications for not just outliers, but their implications for the whole of society with accomplishment now he was very quick to say that they were not professional hockey players just because their birthday was in january that it was it was a tremendous amount of work tremendous amount of dedication blood sweat tears a lot of natural abilities that you know is no factor out of their control but it wasn't it wasn't environmental and this was an environmental analysis the difference is their environment gave them just that extra edge to take them from the 23rd mile to the uh, 25th mile to the 26th mile of the marathon. And when that happened, that's what created the outlier. So the, the, one of the takeaways that I glean from the book is that, that equity can be microscopic. It can be microscopic uh, of an issue in the starting place. Um, and, and, I'm going to kind of give a personal example of how how a very small equity disparity can create a an outlier situation in my daughter's volleyball. We didn't know, the parents didn't know that the other team, that our team had gotten a technicality and that we were supposed to be starting one point behind. All we know is when they started the second set of volleyball, the other team had one point on the clock before there was ever the first serve. So we were confused, and we kept kind of like shouting down to the timekeeper, "Hey, the clock is wrong! The clock is wrong!" Well, they should have told the parents. They created a lot of unnecessary angst for us. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is, the longer it went, the more upset the parents got because it was a very close match. The other team almost ended up beating us. We only beat them by the two points you have to beat them by. But at any given time, it was you know we were going over, so we were thinking to ourselves, "We've already won this game four times over." but we keep going to tie up, down, up, down, like tennis does. But we've already won this game four times over. If that clock error hadn't been there, if that team didn't have that one point unfair starting point, right? And anger was the result that we felt. So our anger subsided whenever we found out next day that it was a technicality, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that's about a high school volleyball match that means nothing at the end of the day. Imagine that that one point, even a one point disparity in starting point um, was your mortgage, Mm. your children, your career, your livelihood, you accomplishing the absolute best version of yourself, paying for groceries. (laughs) It gets real and it gets important you know, really, really fast. So, and and I don't know that it was even Malcolm Gladwell's intention to make social applications, but that was one of the takeaways I got from the book. Um, it's a combination of working at it really, really hard, and making sure that everybody has a great playground to operate on. Was my take
1: I love that so much, and that is so true. Um, and the things I think that's that's something that we need. Need as an industry to make sure that we see more of, and I know that it's something that you, that w- at what are we're very top of mind to make sure that we're providing that to everybody that we touch. So yeah. love that, and now I want to read that book.
0: So. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know that you'll get the same takeaway that I did. Right, right. I was no, just in that, that, that frame amazing. of mind when I was reading that was it. Amazing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Love that.
0: And I did feel really bad for the for the hockey players that were really good at their sport, but were born in December. I did feel very bad for them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, and they say it's 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 funny because they also say that like the oldest child tends to be the top performer statistically mm-hmm. in families. And it's really because the parents have no idea what they're doing. And so they have to be more resourceful. At least that's my Heatherism take on it is mm-hmm. that. You know, and I also think that there's the oldest, they say that the parents are stricter because yes. they're less confident and they're also afraid. And yeah. so there's a lot of scrutiny from the parents and then there's a very, there's a lot more pressure to perform. So that's interesting. So, it you know, you you have to wonder because, you know, when you have more than one child, we I have four, um, to see that difference and it plays out over and over again. So, so much so that we, you know, we hear about it all the time. So.
0: So yeah, fascinating, so, fascinating yeah, stuff. Absolutely. All right, so uh, let's talk about those social posts that we saw this week. Um, what's the one that you was your favorite?
1: Okay, and and Joe, don't get mad at me, but it involves cats.
0: Oh, God. No, really, <laughs> either that or horses. If I was a betting man, <laughs>
1: cats or horses, mm-hmm. and and it has absolutely no business. Um, it has absolutely no business, and it was just that I loved it so much. I'm like, I'm bringing this to the podcast. I'm totally bringing it to the podcast. <laughs> So um, it was a picture and it was by no context text Brits. And so uh, RS Archer, and it said in the UK right now, a train is delayed as a cat is sitting on the roof and refusing to come down. And it was a picture of a Metro train with a cute little tabby cat sitting right on top of it. And so my question was, what's the process for keeping cats out of the subway Like that's dangerous for the cat. And it's, you know, so what, what, here's a problem here that we don't want our furry friends to get hurt, but we also don't want to make people late. So where's the process? And then second is cats are amazing and adorable and kudos to them for not, you know, for, for protecting the cat. They, they have my full support on that.
0: The UK is is winning uh, in the the contest of countries for Heather's brain. Right. Yep. So and then um, the
1: picture was just. I love your
0: takeaway from process because you know we could use that metaphorically now and talk about well you know what cats are in your you know your subway station you know it, right what cats uh, the are things sitting that on are your slowing your process down yeah
1: what cats are sitting on your train
0: yeah absolutely yeah. Um, all right. So for for mine, it was more of a conversation because uh, uh, Vimal Maul Baba, he, he asked and I don't even necessarily follow him, though I know who he is. Um, but he asked a really good question. He says, uh, what's your number one tip for staying focused throughout the day? And there were a couple of responses from some people I do and don't know, but I'm not going to break them all down. But what I can tell you is there was a common denominator in all of them. And it was to stay focused, you must have moments where you are focused on something other than your work. So it's it, it's counterintuitive to stay focused on your work. You must take your focus off your work from time to time. So again, back to a TV movie buff thing, I'm watching billions. And I noticed that this guy that runs a billion, multi-billion dollar hedge fund uh, makes himself uh mentally check out eyes closed he sets a timer on his phone and he goes through mental exercises to completely flush his brain in the middle of his day and i noticed that he uh and he coaches all of his team to do the same thing because it's the only way to stay focused on the task is to not focus for a minute right or multiple minutes on the task that was mine
1: or you could get an office cat
0: Because they will constantly distract you. They will distract they, you. Yes. They'll
1: jump up on your keyboard and you'll have to pick them up and put them back down. So that's yeah. another way to get your mind out of it is to, to have an office cat.
0: Well, and I think pets in general, too, because uh, my Yorkshire Terrier doesn't jump on my desk, though he can almost make it that high. They're jumpers. Uh, but he does make me have to get up from my desk because his bladder is only so big. Uh, right, And so throughout the day, I have to get up, I have to walk, I have to go outside, I have to look into the sunshine. Um, and so I'm thankful to him for that. Now, um, I'm not even sure that I would get up to eat if it weren't for my bio breaks and the dog's bio breaks. So, all right, we get, we're going to wrap up like we always do by you telling us your favorite article in the Woodard Report, because this is the Woodard Report podcast.
1: Okay, so my favorite article this week is is Four Ways to Automate Your Firm's Project Management Processes, which was written by Carl Koh, who happens to be the founder and CEO of Mingo. And uh, I like this article because it's it talks about automating. Project management is something that we really focused on today, um, is really looking at those processes and getting a handle on what you're doing. And this is actually going to take it to that next level. So once you know what you're doing, how do you plan that and, and manage that? through project management and so exciting. So hopefully check that out at uh, report.woodard.com. And yeah, awesome. Okay.
0: Well, folks, it's been another great episode. We've had a lot that we've talked about and it was a lot of fun doing it all with you, Heather. We'll see everybody else next time.
1: See you later, everyone.
0: Thank you for joining us. For more information, please visit woodard.com slash podcast.